All right, for the last, let's see, prior four weeks, we were doing a series on idolatry, identifying idols and working through them. We're going to wrap that up tonight. And we, for those who haven't been on board, a uh, quick definition just so you can maybe catch on just a little bit. We've kind of come from these assumptions. We all struggle with idols, and they distract us from wholehearted devotion to God. Um, we felt that this series has been really personal because hopefully what has happened in here is people have been able to look inward and go, yeah, what are the things that hang me up? We've gone through four weeks. The first week was money, uh, worshiping money. For some people, that's a really difficult thing. Um, John even identified that there's both those who, they worship money in the sense where they need more and more of it. Some of us don't have any and think we don't worship money, but we think about it all the time. So just because you don't have lots of money doesn't even necessarily mean that you don't have an issue with worshiping money. So that was our first week. Our second week was love. And love is a difficult topic because we're commanded to love. We're commanded to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. So love is very core to what humans are supposed to do. We are created to do that. However, most of the world, if you know, doesn't love God first. Right? We don't love God with all our hearts, our minds, our souls, and strength. We love other people, other things, sometimes material objects. Who knows? Everyone has their things that they love. And that is an idol, to love anything above God. So an idol, as you see, is anything more important to you than God. It's anything, it's taking a good thing and making it ultimate. Only God is supposed to be ultimate. So we did that. Third week, we did success or glory. If you make success your end-all, be-all, you make your identity based upon what you achieve, right? That's the issue of success. And then finally, two weeks ago, we did impact and so kind of like some maybe periphery or cultural idols like impact or freedom, um, individualism, things like that. We kind of wrap those all up as well. So tonight, we're going to answer a few questions. And the first one is, why is idolatry so bad? Why in the world have we been taking the last four or five weeks of your lives to do this? Um, and I want to offer a couple things. By the way, for those who are new, you know you can jump in at any time, right? You know you can ask questions, disagree. Please feel free to do so. But why is idolatry so bad? Here's a quote from a 17th century pastor, David Clarkson. He says, I assume that you have them just like I do. Though few will own it, nothing is more common. If we think of our soul as a house, idols are set up in every room, in every faculty. This is a problem. If this is true, which... Many pastors would agree, many people would agree. There are all the time, there are things that tempt us to take our devotion away from God. So why are they so bad? And the first one is maybe a pragmatic reason, maybe even a self-focused reason. If we build our lives or our identity on an unsure foundation, we should expect it to come crashing down. The results will be disastrous. I specifically said, should expect it to come crashing down, because Jesus said that. He said that in Matthew 7. If you obey my teachings, you are making a sure foundation on the rock. And if you don't, you are making it on sand. And it's going to come crashing down. It's going to wash away. So this is something that Jesus said. Paul phrases it this way when referring to his own ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-11. He says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Paul refers to this in his own ministry. He refers to it. He's trying to say, when I've been planting churches, when I've done this ministry that God has given me to do, 
I'm laying the foundation on Christ. I'm building on top of it. So we want to make sure that's, we know that's the context. However, there is a larger implication of our very life, right? The foundation by which we are building our identity upon should be the foundation that's already been laid, Jesus. Paul, later in that scripture, goes to talk on about when you build things, God is ultimately in the judgment. God is going to look at everything we've done. And some, he says, if it's made out of straw or hay, it may burn through the fire, and you may be one escaping through the fire. So it's not your salvation in question that he's talking about, but basically God wants, it, only Jesus Christ, the foundation, is going to endure. And so anything we do that doesn't have that as a foundation, it's going to burn up. It's going to go to nothing. Okay? So the pragmatic reason is if we are building our identity, our lives, on things that don't endure, that aren't eternal, we should expect them to come crashing down. Not, not be surprised by them. We should actually expect it. Yeah. So this might be like a whole other topic. But like essentially, there's so many people that do build their lives on things that are completely false, and they don't come crashing down. And they're like successful, wonderful people that like go on to have this like great legacy and have helped like so many people. So would you say that they do that because their actions are still reflecting godly attributes, or would you say that like ultimately like what they have done is still like not worth it? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say a couple things. One, in God's grace, God sometimes does do some quite um, uh, amazing things. Like, I mean, Paul was doing his own thing, and God broke through and said, you're going to go to the Gentiles, and, and really struck him down in a very powerful way. So God does do that on occasion. But there are many occasions that God does not choose to coerce us with his love. God chooses to freely give it and desires for it to be freely received. So I think there are, yes, I mean, we know lots and lots of people, the, the Proverbs, the Psalms say things like, why do the wicked prosper, right? Even those who are directly opposing God sometimes are the one with the greatest, ones with the greatest success. So the way we'd understand that, one, is that God's love doesn't coerce. Um, humans build all kinds of things. Some things endure, some things don't. Um, and so I don't think God is necessarily going to rip the idols out of your life. He may. He may do some things that are very powerful. Um, he may choose to allow them, and that's, that is some of the danger there, is God does not remove everyone's idols immediately all the time. I'm thankful in, in my story, in my life, that God did that. I mean, and I could have fought him longer, but I needed to not make a baseball team. I needed to not have that kind of experience. Um, but lots of people don't make a team. I mean, you know, Michael Jordan's a famous a athlete who got cut uh, from his high school team and then, you know, was a superstar in North Carolina and then arguably the best basketball player who's ever lived, right? So I took that, though, as a sign to say, you know, maybe there are other things in life and God kind of met me. So I feel like God kind of moved in my life in a way that removed it for me because I don't think I would have walked away from baseball on my own. That's my story, you know, but that doesn't happen in everyone's life. So I think that God allows for human flourishing, and yet even, even if it's apart from him, he's, we've been created in God's image, in the divine image. We've been given skills and abilities, and we can direct them to whatever ends we choose. Okay. Second, God cares about our flourishing, and idols oppose our flourishing. Jesus says a couple things. One, couple scriptures that came to mind. So John 8, 31 to 32. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
I had it pointed out years ago from a seminary professor that Jesus says only one thing in specific will set you free. The truth. The truth is the only thing. Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we consider idols and how they oppose the truth, we aren't living in the truth. We aren't flourishing the way God would desire for us to flourish. John 10.10 says it this way, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus promises a full, abundant life. It is up to us to decide whether or not we actually believe him, whether his offer is good, whether his offer is something we would like to receive. Like Abby pointed out, lots of people say, you know what, I'm going to define success in this area. They go for it and succeed very well according to human standards. It's really about whether or not the things endure, though, because if this life is, is not the end, if there is something more, then I think we should, take, we should consider Jesus' claims and see if that truly sets us free. I believe it does. I believe it set me free, and that's why a lot of us are sitting in this room, because we would agree that God has set us free. Idols threaten our salvation. Idols oppose God. This one might tweak out just slightly, because uh, we don't like the idea of losing salvation. Um, it's a theological thing that we can debate at another time. What I would say is this. Think about the big picture of God's activity in the world. God saved Israel, right, and worked in very powerful ways. And the story of Israel is that he tried to keep them from idols, and they chose them anyways. What did it end up in? In 722, Israel is cast out. In 586, Judah is exiled, right? I mean, there were, throughout, read Ezekiel, read any of the books in the Bible, idolatry is a central sin, and the consequences of it is being cast out from God's presence, directly opposing God. Now, did the Israels fall away completely and forever? No, absolutely not. Paul even talks about how the Gentiles have now even been grafted into Israel, right? And either way, God has not, because of the idolatry of people, totally abandoned humanity. That is not the story of Scripture at all. However, there are many people who fall away from Christ because they decide they want to worship something else, and God lets them in many cases. It does threaten our salvation. It's not an overstatement to say that idols threaten our salvation. It tempts us to not worship the living God, which is what we were created to do. All right? God is faithful, He is, but he did reject them, and it's a terrifying place to be to be rejected by God. It is a terrifying place to oppose God directly. Uh, the Westminster Confession says this. Uh, I was reminded of this also this morning. That we are created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what we are created to do. Every person who's ever lived was created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So when we are not doing that, we are not in a good place. That, that's the way I'd like to keep it at. Yeah. How would you address that? Because like, when you said like, idols threaten our salvation, I'm like, wow, like, I'm screwed for life. Like, because <laughs> like, you know, like, I have these things. Yeah. I was going to say too though, I think that the real danger is when you look at your life and you don't feel like anything threatens your salvation. Not like, because there's that verse about how we can't be plucked from God's hand once we're, you know, like saved, but in the sense of like, oh, I do everything perfect and I've right. eradicated all these idols and so obviously there's nothing wrong with me and I'm fine. You know, like, I feel like that's more dangerous than being in a place where being like, you know, I need to keep this thing under control because there's still you're still tied to God in that place. Whereas when you feel like you have your life figured out, you're not tied as much to God because you don't depend on Him. I like what Heather's saying. It's kind of like 
Oh, you're kind of capturing what I'm thinking. I think it's more about where your heart is, and it's a journey, and like a process. I think God knows like our hearts, and he knows like the journey that we're on with our salvation, and it's definitely a process that never stops. And so if we're constantly willing to search ourselves and at least rid ourselves of these things, at least we're constantly coming back to God. You're going back to God, back to God, back to God, no matter what. And of course, it's not okay to be like, we'll never be perfect and do whatever, but really, we'll never be perfect. And my life actually recently has been really impacted by someone that is very imperfect. And I look at that and I just think God is amazing because he uses imperfect people to do amazing things. So I just think it's where our heart is. Is your heart always searching so that when you find those things that you love God enough to want to rid yourself of it, no matter how many times you find something, then I think you're okay, like you're on the right path. Yeah, I would, I would agree and say, how, how strongly has this idol gripped your heart? Because some have gripped it to the very depths where you, I mean, when I say threaten salvation, yeah, I mean, literally people don't come to know the Lord because they don't want to. It has gripped them so strongly that they, they have no desire to even know God, right? Um, so that's, there are different levels of how hard your heart has been gripped by them. So let's move to replacing idols. And we're going to look at a story where uh, Jacob's idols are replaced. It's very short. Um, and his was a search for blessing. Jacob had always searched for blessings. He was very deceitful and conniving. If you know many of the stories, he stole his brother's birthright right, through a bowl of soup. He also stole Esau's blessing from Isaac. And because of that, his brother finally got fed up with it. And Jacob had to flee for his very life. So the story we're looking at is actually in Genesis 32, where at this point, Jacob learns that Esau and basically a small army is about to come upon him. And he's worried for his life because the last time he saw Esau was decades before. And he fled and Esau hated his life and wanted to kill him. So he just assumed, all right, he's finally tracked me down. I'm in trouble. And so he spends the night with God. And God really meets him there because Jacob had been searching his entire life for the real blessing. He'd been searching it from others, and God grips him. So here's what it says in Genesis 32, verses 24 through 31. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And this man is very ambiguous. We don't know if it's God himself. We don't know if it's an angel. The writer specifically leaves it kind of ambiguous. When he saw that he could not overpower him, that's the man, when he saw he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose up above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. So it's a very fascinating story. Many of you have probably heard it. Um, a couple points, though, is the man touches Jacob's hip, and it goes out of socket. So we know that this God is infinitely more powerful than Jacob. It's not really even very ambiguous as to that. So it's kind of a fascinating thing that either God or this angel is wrestling with Jacob and yet completely holding back his power and yet kind of in this stalemate, right? And so he's really trying to work on Jacob's character here. And interestingly, the man says, let me go. 
right? Let me go. And so what's fascinating is if my hip were touched, just simply touched and it went out of socket, and this man said, let me go, I'd be like, good, good, I'm out of here, right? I mean, clearly God or this angel has way more power. And yet Jacob finally sees the opportunity, Tim Keller argues in his Counterfeit Gods, Jacob finally sees the opportunity that this is what I've been searching for. I have been searching for God's blessing all my life. I've been searching for identity, and now I'm finally in this crazy situation with God or an angel or someone. I'm not letting him go. And that's why he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I have been searching for deep blessing all my life, and I finally got it. The man says, fine, and he ends up blessing him there. Now, Tim Keller argues this. Every human being then needs blessing. We all need assurance of our unique value from some outside source. The love and admiration of those you most love and admire is above all rewards. We are all looking for this deep admiration, looking from it from our parents, our spouse, our peers. These are good things. It isn't wrong to desire a blessing from those around you, from your community, from your family. Those are good things. But they, at times, are not, they're not going to go to the depths of our hearts. And sometimes those people who have blessed us will fail us or take back their blessing. And there is nothing greater than the blessing of God. And finally, Jacob received that. And so there, usually blessing involves words. And so we don't know what that man spoke into Jacob's heart other than the name change, right? I mean, that was part of the blessing. But there is probably something even more. And it's that that we need to focus upon tonight. Because if we are going to be serious about replacing idols, we've got to experience God's blessing. And I love this quote that Tim Keller says. He says, have you heard God's blessing in your inmost being? Are the words, you are my beloved child in whom I delight an endless source of joy and strength? Have you sensed through the Holy Spirit God speaking to you? That blessing, the blessing through the Spirit that is ours through Christ, is what Jacob received. And it is the only remedy against idolatry. Jesus, is one of his most powerful experiences was being baptized and hearing the audible voice of the Father saying, this is my son, whom I'm well, you know, my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Right? That was a, an amazing experience in Jesus' life. And that same blessing, Paul teaches that, that we are co-heirs with Christ. First John tells us that we are children of God. Right? Have we heard that blessing in our inmost being, that you are my beloved child in whom I delight? And is it an endless source of joy and strength? That underline is mine. Because I think for most of us, yeah, at times, that sounds good. It's meaningful. It even does warm our hearts. Most people in this room are Christians saying, yeah, I'm trying to trust God, and, and I do love God, and I'm, I'm interested in knowing him more. But is it an endless source of joy and strength? That's the real question. Because if it is, our idols will continue to be replaced. God will graciously show them to us, and we will fall in love more and more with God. Yeah. Or what if, like, have you sensed through the Holy Spirit God speaking to you those icons? What if that you haven't? Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, it involves repentance, obviously, and confession. Um, it involves, like uh, Monique had mentioned, it's a process. You know, I mean, I actually, I've come, I think in this last year, maybe made this connection, maybe I made it before, but I actually think it's a grace of God to show us our sin. Right? I mean, and I've learned, even especially in this first year of marriage, you start to learn certain things about yourself, and some of them good, and some of them not good. You know, and I, I really do believe it's hard, but I really believe that's a grace because the first step is just seeing it. So much of our, 
wrong behavior many times just out of sheer ignorance. We just don't know. We haven't been taught. Um, we don't have a clue. So some of the grace is simply like that's the first revelation. Wow, my heart, that voice, it's not an endless source of joy and strength. Okay, why is that? What else, what, what other joys and strength am I finding? I mean, that, that begins that process of really saying, okay, I'm, I'm clearly not fully satisfied and fully secure in, in Christ. Um, that's the beginning point. And then we're hoping that the Spirit would continue to minister to us and take us to deeper places, yeah. I think, too, there's a big chunk of shame and guilt that you have to deal with in yourself. And, you know, like, if Scripture, like, we don't... It's like we believe in God, but do we believe God? The promises of Scripture. Do we believe what he says when he says that he has good plans for us, that he will make all things work for good, that he has stripped us of our sin and separated us far in the east, is from the west? Like, we don't believe those things. We can't forgive ourselves for those things. And God's like, why the hell are you going back to that same thing I already let you go of two years ago? And you're still going back to it because you can't let go of it. Yeah, that's the beginning point. You know, I mean, and it's not. And we'll, we'll go through a few more that hopefully I'm, I'm planning to get to some more practical steps on how do we actually move forward. Yeah. So like I agree with like Phil like in a lot of this like I definitely have not felt that as like an endless source of joy and strength and like and a lot of people around me like who are strong Christians that have like dealt with like issues of depression or like other things that and, like they cognitively can know this um, and at like points in their heart have believed it um, but there is a disconnect in this like continual thing and oftentimes it's not something in their life that they can point out like as like an idolatry and so my question is is this something that can be done individually or is this inextricable from communal I think we certainly need both you can't separate from both. I mean, Scripture's pretty clear on the reality of, of fruitful faith is lived out in community. I mean, it's just everywhere. At the same time, of course, there has to be individual... I mean, Christ stole away and had an intimate, deep relationship with, with the Father, you know, in the desert, on his own, early in the morning, all kinds of times. So there has to be that balance of us working through things on our own with the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, and then us needing the direction, support, encouragement. There are clearly times in all of our faiths where we should be able to say, yeah, <laughs> I was low in a place of faith, and you know, my roommates were the ones who spoke love into my heart and, and reminded me of who God is. We, we should all experience that. that. That shouldn't surprise us. We certainly need each other. Um, I think probably one of the scariest things is when God allows someone to just be handed over to like all their sin, and so people that seem to continually be like um, abounding and getting more money and more fame or whatever it is, maybe they've been given over to their, their indulgences and they'll never realize, like you said, because something isn't taken away. It's actually the worst thing that can happen. And so I think throughout life, you're going to hit some low points and maybe you're not necessarily feeling this is an endless source of, of joy or someone who's clinically depressed. It could be a chemical thing, pain, grieving, all of that. One thing that I have noticed and has helped me, a quiver of hope you can always kind of cling to, is the person who maybe doesn't feel that immediate joy, but like that thought is still in their head, like, God, I want it to be you. Or like the fact that you even care, the fact that you even still seek, like that to me is a sign, like there's a seed of the Holy Spirit in you that's still working, that's still pulling you towards him. 
even when you're not feeling ridiculously overjoyed and happy, even if sometimes you feel abandoned or whatever, but the fact that something in your heart keeps yearning that brings you back to church or back to prayer or back to seeking God, like, that's something, that's a starting point, that's something to hold on to, to know that, like, in your spirit, you're still longing for Him. Oh, yeah, and, I mean, you, I like that you brought up feelings and also God's felt presence because many spiritual writers have talked about the dark night of the soul, that God literally even chooses to pull back his felt presence so that you would begin to love God for God and not just for his blessings. So that's kind of another thing if you want to talk to me more about because I've actually read quite a bit about some of those things. So yeah, just because you're not feeling God's presence and, and times of depression or loneliness or hurt, that we should also experience in this world. Like sin is a reality, evil pain, loneliness, despair. Uh, there are certain sins. Even if, even if so you're sitting here going, yeah, right now I think the idols are low in my life. I don't think they're all that present. Uh, that doesn't mean sin isn't still involved in your daily life. That doesn't mean other things aren't happening. Um, so it's not that you are a robot that is always happening, always smiling. Um, there are going to be times where you don't feel God's presence and God even specifically takes it back so that you can grow to deeper places with God. So we do have to separate those. Um, yeah, let's move forward. This is a scripture to meditate upon. This is how we replace idols. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Those first four verses, set your minds and your hearts on things above. That's how we, this is a practical step. We have to actually begin thinking about our lives and saying, what, what are the things I'm doing that may not endure? What are the things I know aren't going to last? What do I just know? This, this just isn't going to make it long term. What are the things I'm doing that are going to make it long-term? What are those things? So I think this is deeply practical, setting our hearts, setting our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, many of us enjoy comfort quite a bit and shelter and all these things that we're so accustomed to. Those things literally fight for our worship of God. They really do. But we have to believe where it says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Some of us don't want our lives hidden with Christ. We don't want to wait. But we have to wait for him to appear, and then we'll appear with him in glory. What this is saying is that ultimately, if we truly are devoted to the kingdom, Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Right? Seek first the kingdom. Seek first God himself. The response, that last verse, put to death, therefore, that's the response. If our minds and our hearts are really set on things above, guess what we're going to do? We're going to start putting to death the earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, success, all, all the things that we've been working through this series and many, many other things that aren't specifically listed here. We will put them to death. We will start to realize, you know what? As much pleasure as I get from this thing, I, I'm just not going to make an ultimate, ultimate anymore because I know it's going to die. It's going to end. Yeah, Jordan, did you ever hear that? Yeah, I was wondering, um, what does it mean to be um, for your life is now in with Christ and God. What does that mean? The idea of it is essentially in the mystery of God, you have become an heir, a co-heir with Christ, right? And so our true riches 
are in Christ. That's why we can believe, when Jesus says, you know, those who lose their life for my sake will actually get it, and, and those who gain will, will lose everything, right? That's what it means to have your life hidden in Christ, that although you may suffer in this world, if we are Christians, we should be giving up things that this world says, no, how could you do that? How could you miss out on this opportunity or this or that? Or how could you, how could you do something like Mother Teresa and go and specifically live a life of absolute poverty to, to save other children? Like you, you lost, I mean, everyone admires her in a general sense, but not many are doing what she did. Right? I mean, there are, there are some, sure, but the vast majority of us are not doing things like that. That only makes sense if you believe that your life is hidden in Christ. Now, she is not the only example. There are many other lifestyles that totally fit into that. I'm just using that as a good example of, yeah, that would only make sense if my life is hidden with Christ. If I really believe that there's something beyond this, I will give my life away because that's what Jesus did for me. That's what I want to do for other people. So that's, that's in part what it would mean to have your life hidden in Christ. I'm, I'm struggling in my mind, like the difference between like the minds on the, the things above and on earthly things. So I feel like that line is so difficult sometimes. Um, and I mean, like, yeah, I know you can get like really easy things, like earthly nature. Yeah, sins. Okay, that's obviously not on things above. But like even other things you're talking about, like things that are good, like love, um, that theoretically I would think are included in the things above category. You know, love, joy, peace, patience. You know, but it's, it's difficult to draw that line. I think. And I think that's, and not that I'm saying, yeah, that's my only struggle is like I, my earthly things are so great, I'm not sure if they're godly things. But it's an interesting like, thing I've struggled with with a few issues. Because like, where does that, how do you know if something you're doing or something you're spending time on is focused on the things above as opposed to earthly things? Yeah, and I think I mean, we're going to get, we're going to move towards spiritual disciplines as a way that's going to help us. I mean, one of the ways, honestly, when you take that away from your life, are you shaken to the core? Yeah, if, if you take something away and go like, wow, that was unbelievably hard. Uh, something is wrong or literally, you know, like, I, I don't feel like I can live without this X, whatever it is. That says something. You're, you're probably over that line as opposed to, hey, this, this was challenging. You know, I, I felt, you know, th there were some difficulties with it. I don't know if it's gripped my life. But I mean, hey, try to go without it. See what happens. You know, devote that to the Lord and, and see what God does in that midst. Um, a lot of what we've been talking about is, is based off of uh, like the, the idle test that we, we have is kind of like, well, how is it affecting your life? Like, how is it affecting your relationship with God? How does that play out? And that's kind of how we've been measuring everything. Um, and I'm wondering, is there more that, that we could be saying about not just how does this affect, like, are you living a good life, but how does this affect the service of the kingdom and like the community in the world not is is this you know affecting your own personal salvation or your own personal relationship but I feel like there's a lot more that could be like this is not necessarily a sin but it's blocking the the service of the kingdom like this thing which is not necessarily bad is keeping you from feeding the poor or going out and doing all those other things um, I just think that, that that's significant yeah thank you for uh, opening that line up more directly yeah, that has to be involved in it. Okay, here are a couple practical steps. If money is your idol, remember back to five weeks ago, I know it's hard to remember, but uh, here's a practical step. Radical acts of giving. Look at, what, look at two contrasting story. Here is Zacchaeus in Luke 19. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So it's clear he's very rich. 
He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed to a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked and said to him, Z Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to the house of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. This is a very common story that maybe many of you have heard of. What we see here is Zacchaeus in this interaction with Jesus. We do not know how so quickly it was prompted because we learn even in verse, what is that, one, uh, two, because he wanted to see who Jesus was, right? I mean, the man didn't even know who Jesus was. But simply by Jesus' invitation, clearly the Spirit was doing something to the point where he recognized, wow, Jesus invited me into his house. He must be somebody special. I, I'm going to give away. I know I've wronged a lot of people in my profession. I know I've made a lot of wealth off of oppressing others and taking advantage of them. I'm giving away half of my money, and if I've wronged anyone, I'll pay them back four times. And Jesus pronounces salvation has come. The kingdom of God has taken root in Zacchaeus' heart in a very powerful way. But like, he goes back to work the next day and like gets fired and is probably like totally screwed for the rest of his life. Like, like the society that he like lived in like is like does not accept him back. Like, there's no way if he was like a tax collector that he just like went back to his job and was like blessed for this like like and it has no kind of like well what did he do after this like well sure we have no idea i mean and this happens all the time through scripture right somebody comes in they interact with jesus we don't hear anything about him ever again right we have no clue uh, what happens to these people afterwards but i would like to say we'd like to believe jesus he said something has happened in this man's heart right now we'd like to think just like in our lives something continues to happen after you come to faith right and and something if this truly was a conversion experience, if this was something where salvation has come, uh, I think it would influence how he tax collects. Or, or maybe he wouldn't do that anymore. Uh, we, we don't know. So I can't answer those questions. It's impossible. However, the interaction in and of itself, he got a peace. He saw the kingdom of God and responded to it in the moment. And we would like to believe and hope that Jesus changes our lives to the point where we continue to respond to the kingdom from then on, you know, in various ways. I was going to say a good example of that would be the story of Paul. He didn't get accepted back by the Pharisees, but he did find community and found a new life and a new way to live with Christians. And so, like, I feel like God's still going to take care of Zacchaeus. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Here's the other story, though. Here's, here's the contrasting story. If, if you can have questions afterwards, it's fine. Mark 10. As Jesus started out on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He seems like he's really desiring. He comes with an honest question, and he comes to the right person. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not fraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, I think Jesus, if you look at what he mentioned, he mentions murder, adultery, stealing, testimony, defraud and father and mother, I think he purposefully chose the commands that seem, they're kind of outward acts, right? I mean, you could say, yeah, I've never stolen. I've never actually given false testimony. I haven't defrauded anybody. I, I do my best to obey my parents. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't murder. And now he gets to the heart. 
So Jesus looked at him and loved him. He's going to go to his heart because this man thinks that he has done these things but doesn't even recognize. He only looks for the outward things. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. He hits at his idol. He says, oh, so you think you can do everything. You can follow me. Well, let's get to the real heart issue. You're greedy. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It's a really sad story. I mean, and this is another one. We do not know what happened to this man. Maybe at some other time he did decide to give up his wealth. Maybe he comes into contact with Christ saying, we don't know. But the way this story ends is very sad. This man came with an honest heart. How, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? He sent away, no, I'm not willing to do that. I, I'm not willing to go anywhere near there. And his disciples are even astonished. They say, well, then who can have salvation? Right? And, and Jesus teaches them with with God, all things are possible. Man, it's, it is going to be impossible, right? So all it is is to say that if money is your issue, you need to at least start thinking about what would it look like if somebody, John had, he gave a good hypothetical. What if somebody wanted to loan $10,000? I think he said more like thirty or 40000 But what if somebody wanted, came to you for a loan? You have the money. Would you do it? Would you even consider it? Why? Why not? There may be good reasons not to do things. I'm not saying you would have to give that or else you're sinning. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying that the hypothetical works to begin thinking, wow, that freaks me out. I'm not willing to do that at all. Oh, money might be an issue. And the only way out of it might be something like Zacchaeus where, you know what? I just have to, I have to give this away because, because I have to find out if money really has this grip. Will the truth set me free? Will I choose God over money? Sometimes they are directly opposed. And Jesus said that. You cannot serve God and money. He said they are directly opposed. Money is not neutral. John has argued that many times. Money is not a neutral thing. Other examples. Replacing the success, glory, and impact idol. We read this last time, but it's good enough to read again. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Something that was helpful in the reading was uh, some pastors even say for the new people they employ, they give them tasks that are very small and quiet, uh, like cleaning the toilet once a week. Like, I mean, just things that nobody else is going to see. You do it in secret uh, to really see, yeah, does this person have a servant's heart? Are they willing to do the things that nobody's going to see or notice or care about? If you have issues with success and impact and glory, this is a very practical step of saying, hey, what's something at my workplace that I could do, specifically that no one's going to see or notice? I'm even going to take the time to go, you know, even if I have to go at 5 a.m. to go do this thing so, so nobody's there. Um, I mean, we have to think creatively, but what are quiet, small ways that you can serve where you are purposely saying, I, I need to not get people's affirmation or attention or, or uh, congratulations on doing things? Uh, and I have to make it regular. It's not like, oh, you do it once and you're done. No, no, no. This is replacing an idol. We've probably got to do this again and again. What are small ways you can act in service? Meditate on Matthew 6. Jesus teaches us that God, who is invisible, sees 
what is done in secret. We have to believe him. That's one I struggle with. I struggle with believing that God really sees everything and that I don't have to have public uh, affirmation or, or things of that nature. Um, we do need that in a general sense, right? Tim Keller even said that. All humans need to know their unique contribution in the kingdom, uh, in family life, in friendship life. I mean, that is important. I'm not trying to say we can live this you know, life where no one ever says a kind and encouraging word. No, that's crazy. That's what Christian community is about, is building each other up, saying edifying things to one another, right? But are there places where, where you don't need that? And, and God will form you and shape you in those places. Okay, a few more practical steps. The spiritual disciplines are means to intimacy with God. They're one of the best things. We've got to figure out, because Abby asked the first week, how do we love God more? How do we love God more? Prayer, solitude, worship, scripture, Lectio Divina, spiritual retreat, Sabbath, fasting, daily, daily moment prayers, like I call them breath prayers, where you just you know, say a quick prayer to the Lord. Tim Keller calls spiritual distance, they're embodied truths. Abby raised tonight, you know, some people know that God loves them. They know it. They know it, you know, cognitively. We have to sometimes pray them into our hearts. Psalm 23 is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We need God to shepherd our hearts. We sometimes have to join in the shepherding of our heart, and we need others to help shepherd our heart as well. Spiritual disciplines are one of the ways to that. A great book that we've introduced at another time, if you've heard of Seven Pathways to God, if you don't know how you connect with the Lord, well, maybe you don't connect with the Lord, and maybe that's something that needs to be found out, right? Maybe that's the first step. Maybe some of you do. Um, whether that's taking a hike in the wilderness and, and praying or just having quiet meditation, whether that's serious study of the Scripture, you need to find your pathways to God. Where, where are the places in your history where you have connected with the Lord? Built something important, intimate. Um, do those things regularly and guard them. People will... You know, life happens, and they will take, try to take those away. So part of it is guarding it and knowing that this is important in my life. Psalm 46.10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. Have you done that? Have you done that in your spirit? Have you done that in your body? Worship in particular. And there's a couple of reasons why. Because worship gets us to look outside ourselves. It's a, it's a real direct and not just in music, there are, there are many ways of worship, but the idea of worship is back to that Westminster confession of glorifying God. I'm going to train my mind to go towards God. I'm, I'm going to start giving that up. And in those moments, you're going to have opportunities to fall in love with the Creator. Um, you're going to be spiritually formed, and we get to contemplate the Lord's beauty and goodness. Do you think God is beautiful? Are you, are you captured by God's love? Does it have any, do you find any comfort and then repentance and rejoicing. So Phil brought up, what do you happen if it's not an endless source of joy? Repentance. And Tim Keller says this, repentance without rejoicing, it's going to lead to despair. Rejoicing without repentance is shallow. It's only going to provide passing inspiration instead of deep change. You need both. Repentance and rejoicing have to go hand in hand. Rejoicing is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect upon its beauty and importance until... Your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. I love that. I think that is a great statement. So that's what rejoicing is, to assess its value, to reflect upon the beauty and importance until your heart actually believes it. It actually rests. It actually tastes sweetness. And Psalm 34, 8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the person who takes refuge in him. Yeah. 
Yeah. So can you give me another picture of like what that would look like? Like kind of specifically, like is it sort of like a happy meditation or like between you or like anyone else? Like what is it? What does it look like to rejoice? Yeah, it's good that she's asking other people, so please chip in after me, uh, because, because people do that differently. Yeah. Um, I, one of my pathways is, is, is intellectual in the sense that when I uh, read scripture or when I hear something new, uh, the contemplation of a new truth is very powerful in my life, and, and that can uh, draw me to God. Um, other people are journalers. They need to write their processing uh, with God. Um, that can be very helpful. I mean, there, there are so many ways to work this out. Um, but, but is solitude even a part of your life? Is there any, because when we look at cultural icon, I mean, this world is so busy, and especially in Southern California, it's, it's, it's produced, it's, it's do this. If you, if you were to say, hey, what are you up to? Oh, I'm busy, man. I, I've been busy. Like, if you just said, eh, I've been doing nothing. It's like, people are, oh, man, this guy's a loser. <laughs> like, you don't do anything? I mean, it's like, we have to resist some of those things and say, like, no, I did the most significant thing today. I took two hours. And I walked up and down the street, and I prayed quietly. Um, I chose to read a book, and then I took a long, warm bath. And it was awesome. I spent time with the Lord, and just, it, it was great. And there was no productivity. Right. But you did something with God. I mean, that, all things can be done with God as opposed to not with God. Yeah, Heather? I was going to say a practical way of ex like, experiencing rejoicing would be just gratitude, thanking God for mm -hmm. things. You know, like I heard a quote once that was like, what if tomorrow you only woke up with the things you thanked God for yesterday? <laughs> and that can be expressed in any way. It can be meditation, it can be journaling, it can be taking a walk with God, but just noticing the little things in your life and saying, thank you, Lord, for that. What did you do, though? Didn't you, uh, what was your goal? A thousand thank you, uh, gratitude journal, but what is that, though? That's a good, I mean, explain. Well, I read a book called 1,000 Gifts, and it was just this lady's journey. And she was having a really tough time, and her friend dared her to write 1,000 things she was thankful for. And through this year of doing this, her life completely changed and her perspective on God changed and she just fell so much more in love with God. And so I've been kind of practicing that and I have my gift journal that I'm working on. And that, that isn't a cookie cutter, oh, like everybody needs their own thank you journal. Like, no, it's not like that. But it's saying these are little things that you can do, yeah, that pray these things into your heart. Um, and not just like thanking God or maybe noticing the blessings he gives in your life, because that's definitely a good one. Um, or noticing the small things that, you know, he does. But um, sometimes for me, rejoicing in God is like, maybe I'll be reading um, scripture and I'll notice something about God's character. Like, you forgave this person, like, in this, like, just something, what are the scriptures doing? Like, this was your response to this situation. And, like, I feel joy in that because I'm like, you're amazing. Like, I can't believe that's the God we serve. Or just, it's like, sometimes if you just really take the time to get to know, like, you care about the poor even in this situation or like you gave grace to this person in that situation, that's amazing because I wouldn't do that. Right, and that's the truth setting you free, right? I mean, that's, that's way back at the beginning. Like you're taking in some of God's truth and going, wow, like this is who God is. That means it could, he'd do that to me. How about, I mean, that, that's taking in the truth and praying it into your heart, yeah. I think like for me this whole concept, like I have to incorporate it into my busyness because like I am just kind of like, crafted to work and to do things and like I used to think that like oh the faster I can work then like I can get all that done and then I can like take my time and like rest and be with God and it's such a lie like for me like the type of person that I am like I have to be like with God as I'm doing my busy things and like as I'm doing like work 
like working eight hours a day, like there is no way that I can't incorporate God into that and like be okay because then I'm like wasting my entire life like doing things. And so like so often like like and I understand like busyness can be a really bad thing and like uh, yada yada. But when it comes to like repentance and rejoicing, like doing that in your like really really meaningless busy tasks is like super profound for me um, and has also provided a lot more reward for the things that I do during the day like making money or like things like that that's like I incorporate it into it as like a thoughtful conscious thing or ask God like if it's hard for me like ask God like oh remind me of things or like bring things to mind um, and all of that to say that I think doing this incorporated with life is important. Yeah, I want to affirm and caution two things. So the affirmation is simply, we're supposed to, God has made us for work and to do things, and we're supposed to uh, kind of, if you think of Brother Lawrence and practicing the presence of God, yeah, his famous statement is, I learned to practice the presence of God to the point where when I was reading scripture and when I was doing the dishes in the kitchen, it was the same. God was with me in both places. Right? And so that's, that's the affirmation where our whole lives are, are supposed to be lived in walking with God, uh, whether that's sleeping, doing, working, playing, whatever it is. The caution, I would say, Abby, is just simply we still need to question, okay, well, what happens if you couldn't be busy? What, what if something happened that didn't allow you? I mean, you know, uh, you get into a car accident, you break your leg for three months, you know, and, and you, you can't do all the things that you were doing before. Like, would your foundation be shaking? to the point where, wow, I'm not being productive. And, and that, that could speak to success issues. That could speak to some of those things. So we have to question, like, why is it? Or, yeah, am I a more high-functioning, you know, I'm just a, a moving around type of person? Uh, that could be part of it. People are created very differently. They need different amounts of individual space and all kinds of different things. So that would be like a caution. Uh, I think about when we're talking about rejoicing and, like, how does that work? Paul writes a lot. You know, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Um, that made me think of, there, there's a hymn called Rejoice. One of the lines is rejoice in, in glorious hope. It, talk, it talks about like looking towards the coming of, of Christ. And one of the ways that that helps me rejoice is that no matter what happens, if it's a terrible day, if it's a good day, if I am you know, facing my own idols and, and the despair of like, can I get through this, um, I still have that, that truth that no matter what, happens in today or this month or my life even if it's terrible um, I can rejoice that you know Christ is coming back and when he does like I'm going to be okay and you know when I when I think about Paul like he that's just all he ever pours out about is we are in Christ and Christ is our life and and so I I consider all of my things rubbish my work is rubbish you know my stuff is rubbish uh, in comparison with Christ and so often I try to have that now immediately and say, like, I want the security now and I want to feel good now and I want to have all my things now. Um, even I want to be satisfied that everything I've done is worthwhile now. Um, and so I kind of get, I can get trapped in that. Um, but I find that if I, if I focus on, you know, that stuff isn't what holds me up and that's not my foundation. Like, I can rejoice because my foundation is not under my control. Like my foundation is not me, it's been set already and I just stand on top of it. And so understanding that, you know, Christ has already won 
and we have life in him, like that helps me rejoice no matter what's going on. Yeah, one more thing. Uh, I'm going to put up that quote one more time just to read it. Have you heard God's blessing in your inmost being? Are the words, you are my beloved child in whom I delight an endless source of joy and strength. Have you sensed through the Holy Spirit, God speaking to you? That blessing, the blessing through the Spirit that is ours through Christ, is what Jacob received and is the only remedy against idolatry. One way I want us to be able to shepherd each other um, and something that I've begun to learn to ask people is, hey, have you talked to God about this? Like when somebody shares something deep or meaningful or, or uh, whatever, uh, I want us to be thinking, let's ask each other, hey, have you, have you even shared this with the Lord? Have you talked directly to, not that he doesn't already know, that he hasn't heard, seen you worry or, or all these things, but, but have you even directed these thoughts, these worries, these fears, these ambitions, these hope, these desires, these whatever fill in the blank? Have you even talked to the Lord with this? That's a way we can point people back to building intimacy, actually growing to love God. It's a very wonderful thing. And as Monique said, this is a journey. Replacing idols is a lifelong process. So there is great hope because God will work in us to help us to set our minds and our hearts on the things above. It can happen. We can see growth. Um, hopefully this series has been intensely practical. We really hope that uh, you have some things to think about and work on. Maybe you've even identified some of the danger zones, the threatening areas. Uh, God, I pray that continue to give grace in that. Uh, you are so good. Lord, you are truly worth all worship and all glory. Uh, Lord, it says that all knees will, on heaven and earth, we're going to bow and worship you and know you and uh, see the greatness. Lord, we thank you that you are so loving to us. We thank you that you would even give us the grace to uh, know our sin. Lord, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us all. Pray that you would help us to be a community that uh, wants to worship you above all else. Lord, help us to love each other and help each other. We pray this in your name. Amen.